can people hear me okay? Louise says I was quite quiet. So you sorted yourself out slightly. Yeah, right. I can hear you. Yeah. I what? Sorry. You sorted what? yourself out. Have you got? I sorted myself out. That makes a change. Just then, yeah. Mm. Oh, fun. Yay. I love it when Alex has a delay. Little did we know then, that delay would last at least four months. And just when you thought the franchise was over, we're back with the return of Praxis. Okay. Hello and welcome. I'll put you down to... on my CV for why. Rude, um, why I'm, I'm introducing this. Rude, <laughs> fucking ableist, and then you you cut through me when I'm trying to do my stuff. Like, are we good? Am, am I good to go? Yes, you may now go. Thank you. Do I have your neurotypical uh, permission to? You have my approval. Please continue. Hello and welcome to Loma Praxis. This week we're talking to Dr. Aaron Keepel, who's a lecturer in contemporary literature and culture at Edinburgh Napier University. Aaron works on the cheery intersections of terrorism and collective trauma in 21st American century literature. Aaron has written on everything from hurricanes and punk rock to nostalgia and stranger things. He's currently setting up a new contemporaries cluster with colleagues at Durham. Um, I don't know if I mentioned, but I'm now at Durham, um, which will focus on literary TV, proving to all of us that the last 18 months we spent on Netflix was actually better than reading. <laughs> Thank you for coming on. Was that remotely accurate? <laughs> yeah, that that hit a few marks, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just a few, not, not all of them, though. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, that was great. Thank you for that. I mean, though, would would you would you classify the twenty first century as the American century? You know, no, I don't. I don't think I would. I mean, I think <laughs> uh, maybe there's an argument to be made about the twentieth century, but uh, I think twenty first century has been about American decline in some compelling ways. So, like, very generally speaking, your works about like terror, collective trauma, so 9-11, Hurricane Katrina, and the legacy of the so-called war on terror. So our first question is, you okay, hon? <laughs> Gosh. Uh, I mean, maybe that's why I've taken these kind of diversions into writing about television and punk rock, because you can only take so much uh, trauma and systemic violence and state violence and terrorism. Um, and I have welcomed the chance to to take some some breaks from those subjects what's your favorite thing to turn to like when you've had a really long day reading about terror what do you switch on well i do watch a lot of tv an awful lot of tv um of you know ranging across all the brows um <laughs> so probably that and you know i i have a cat as well and that's really helpful just watch that that's, that's really important <laughs> Because like, like I I 
I definitely turn to turn my brain off after like a whole day of reading about climate catastrophe and disaster. I'm like, time for some RuPaul. And then it really irritates me when like there's an episode where they do something like, oh, climate realness. I'm like, no, fuck off. I don't need climate realness in my life. I've had climate realness all day. So do you ever find it really irritating if like a show you turn to for sort of comfort and um, brain deadness for lack of a bit of description, then suddenly has like a terrorist plot line? Do you feel a bit betrayed by that? Yeah, I mean, that happens all the time, actually, yeah. Um, Particularly with your kind of like BBC six-part procedural dramas, which I am an avid uh, admirer of usually, or at least I watch them all the time. But I think, I mean, one thing that I've turned to a lot, I don't know about you guys, but over the pandemic, I've I've often been re-watching things I've watched in the past for kind of that narrative comfort, you know, you know it's going to happen. And you know what kind of world this is, so it's yeah. So I've been rewatching a lot of things that I watched years ago. What are you, what are you rewatching? Well, I I rewatched um, the television series Justified, all six seasons. Oh, yes. of that. We started that. I couldn't get through it very much. I was just but like, oh, every episode he has to say Justified. <laughs> there, there is that. Yeah, that does happen. <laughs> I mean, he is he is incredibly hot. Is it Timothy Oliphant? Is that his name? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's great. Oh yeah. I am. Uh, we, we tried it. I haven't haven't quite gone back. I enjoy how we could measure the pandemic, like in terms of phases of Netflix. Um, mm, so mm-hmm. we remember the Tiger King days. We remember. But we're in Tiger King re- Renaissance. Tiger King Two is coming out. Oh King my gosh! Have you seen the advert for it? There's like there's new stuff. Like it's it's actually continued. They're not just dragging up the old stuff. That it's not finished. The narrative's not finished, <laughs> and they've done deep dives into like areas that didn't get covered on the show at all and obviously God, um, i'm struggling to know what that could be or to think what that could be well like um <laughs> carol baskin's husband and his dealings in costa rica they've gone to costa rica they didn't last time and uh, like joe exotic running for president joe exotic trying for a presidential pardon before trump got out of office like there's a Joe Exotic getting raging that all the other people that were on Tiger King made so much money from it. And uh, he is obviously in jail, so he couldn't profit from it. Um, So yeah, the story's not over. But um, yeah, we had the Tiger King days and I don't know if you guys did. um, There was um, was the cheerleader one. Oh, the cheerleader. Ah, cheer. Cheer, yeah. Like there was definitely like a long time where every joke was like, "I'm never going to make Matt," and then it just kind of <laughs> fell out of the cultural zeitgeist. Yeah. Um, it seems like everybody was watching The Queen's Gambit at one point. Mm. As oh well. yes, I think that's because everyone was just sort of like, "Oh, you know what would be better right now is just getting really blasted and playing chess." That's kind of- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's a definite appeal there. I think the shift from Love Is Blind to Squid Game is particularly interesting. Mm. Indeed. Mm. <laughs> What does that tell us about where we're at culturally, yeah. collectively? Yeah, that's an interesting one. <laughs> <laughs> Bing, bang, bong, sing, sang, song, ding, ding, dong, UK. Professional Standards Framework works with individuals and institutions in higher education to provide students with an excellent learning experience. Okay, so this is the, um, you may have heard from your good, good colleague, Sarah, uh, about the the methodology kazoo, um, as we like to call it. So we create a tune for you that we think is in some ways related to your work, and you then have to guess the tune 
and then tell us why in our brains it made sense to play it why we think it's what i love is like how deep people go into it so feel free to make all kinds of connections but more often than not it's just the most superficial one no um, no no. we we put a lot of thought into this it takes us ages to decide we do a lot ages. of research we normally decide like you know well, see that makes her. it more pressure because <laughs> i'm gonna feel like if i don't guess it then i've wasted your time <laughs> oh yes exactly yes <laughs> okay i'll do my best well done okay here we go <clears throat> oh i know this can you can you do it one more time alex i can do it one more time Definitely just singing the words now. Definitely. I added a bit. It's on the tip of my tongue. Yeah, see? Yeah, I did it. Okay, that's good. I'm drawing a complete blank, I'm afraid. That was quite good. Blame it on the jet lag. That was actually quite good for me. I'm quite pleased with that one. Let us down, Aaron. We came up with this 30 seconds before you came on. Very rigorous process. Okay. Um, what if we said Green Day? Would that help? Oh, American idiot. Okay. Yeah. I feel that's disappointed. I want to make it clear. referring to it subversive war on terror content, which I presume you're referring to rather than me as an American idiot. <laughs> yes. yes. Yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. Well, that's, I mean, that's, that's a cool one. I, I actually had a great uh, year four essay last year in my Fictions of Terror seminar, which was um, this student who's a wonderful student proposed this essay, project essay on Camilla Shamsi's Home Fire and Green Day's American Idiot and the War on Terror. And I wasn't persuaded by it at first, but it turned out to be such a great piece of work. And it was one of those really gratifying things to read when it came in, you know um yeah oh, we love those yeah nice okay so tell us why why does this song in some ways uh, map onto your methodology your praxis as it were i guess uh I mean, I mean okay i'm gonna i am gonna have to extrapolate here quite a bit but i think i guess <laughs> what, I, what i've tried to do in a number of pieces of work is to look at literary text and think through the ways they provide some kind of counter narrative to the official American narrative and discourse and, um, you know, understanding of 9-11 and the war on terror. Uh, so maybe there's something there. Is that, am I onto something? I mean, Louise, what do you think? You chose this one. I mean, that was what I was going for. The, um, is it like... <laughs> Those halcyon days when we thought that George W. Bush was the worst thing that would happen to America and the war on terror. Remember those days where there was like rock against Bush and it was like... I do actually, like, I, 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 I think this is actually like a serious question. There's been a very weird thing where because of Trump in the last few years, people have turned George Bush into this sort of like weird cuddly uncle figure. Like, have you noticed this in the media? It's like, oh, he's sneaking Michelle Obama a toffee. It's okay. He's not a war criminal. Like, it's really odd. He's not a war criminal. He paints now. He paints. He paints portraits of dogs. He's okay. Yeah, I mean, 
I would wholeheartedly reject that, of course. Um, and I don't want to get in, in, into any kind of who's worse, Trump or Bush, but no. I, I think it would be a pretty close, you know, and I think arguably what Bush has done, you know, it, it has had very, very far-reaching and long-term seismic effects on the world. And it remains to be seen whether the damage that Trump has done is more kind of short-term. Um, we'll, we'll see, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But certainly the Bush pre presidency was deeply pernicious. And, um, you know, one of the things I've been doing in my work is is, is trying to think or question the way that we periodize by 9-11, like the mm -hmm. post 9-11. And I think um, I've been trying to propose that a more accurate way of periodizing would be to call the Bush era or the post 9-11 era, the war on terror era, because 9-11 mm. was one kind of moment and one event. And yes, it may be said to have set things in motion, but you know, it, it was the way that America and its allies responded to that event that mm. really has had the lasting long-term mm. and seismic effects that have changed and shaped the world in the 21st century. Um, yeah, I'm not sure how I got onto that tangent. Precarious academic. My question, though, is um, if you could throw an object at George W. Bush that wasn't a shoe because that was already so successful, what would it be and why? Oh, um, well, asking I mean, the, the important no, questions. The, <laughs> <laughs> the Five Guys milkshake phenomenon that went around yes. uh, <laughs> a series of protests just pre-pandemic, I think, was mm -hmm. was quite mm -hmm. appealing. So maybe a five ninety five salted caramel Five Guys milkshake. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent, right in his face. <laughs> but I mean, Louise, you you've written this one down about like. And it's something that struck me as well, but just the the idea of um, periodization that you were talking about, Aaron, how actually that's not a, a sense that the students that we encounter these days have perhaps a sense of. Mm -hmm. Like, Yeah, so one of those things like what, that struck me the other day when I realized how old I was, was, you know, <laughs> they weren't alive <laughs> during 9-11. And because it's got such a cultural impact for folk of sort of, are millennials and upwards it was I was just wondering about you know what does memory do when like you can't remember the event itself but that your the sort of collective memory is still there still very much present in the way that society now functions like so even if you weren't alive yeah. you're still affected Yes, and it's a great question. And actually, it's a good entry point into considering events and how we remember and understand and memorialize and, and all those things. And, you know, um, I sometimes talk to my students in the kind of 9-11 sections of my Fictions of Terror class about what events, what kind of landmark events or big public events they remember from their own lifetimes and use that as a way of thinking through that. But I, I mean, as I said before, I'm quite interested in kind of questioning the way that um, those kind of events have been ideologically harnessed to advance certain specific narratives. And and yeah, so a lot of my students weren't born during 9-11, but um, I think it's a good 
a good route in teaching and teaching them and talking to them is to kind of show them some video. And I always use the, um, the famous Nade brothers, uh, accidental documentary about nine 11, cause it has some very shocking footage. That's, mm-hmm. it's, it's quite useful and powerful. And, um, and then working backward from there and thinking about and questioning the, those, those narratives that emerge out of events like that. Do you um, address the flip side of, of those? Cause I feel like in terms of from like a very like Western Eurocentric position, terror is like, those moments of spectacle of explosion of incursion but obviously the other side of that is like you were saying earlier the seismic events that unfold after that in terms of the war in afghanistan the, with the kind of infiltration of iraq all these other places right the kind of like that is also a product of terror so is that also kind of like the, the narratives that you deal with do they also kind of look at that side of things Absolutely, yeah, and I guess in the project that I'm working on now, it's it's a kind of central focus to look at state violence and look at systemic violence, the kinds of phenomena that allow radicalization to happen. And increasingly, I've been looking at um, representations of white nationalist violence as well, and other kinds of uh, terrorism that relate to long-standing forms of entrenched systemic racism um but but yeah certainly um the war on terror as state violence and and that's another way of questioning the way we understand 9-11 as an event because an event that changed everything in inverted commas because there are certainly kind of prehistories to the war on terror that go back much further than 9-11 that moment but yes, yeah, I mean, my, my project that I'm working on now is kind of about, you know, looking at the way fiction has moved away from what I'm calling event-centered narratives of terrorism and looking more at um, state violence, systemic violence, and the conditions that make radicalization possible and different forms of terrorism that haven't been given as much attention, you know. And there's a lot of really interesting new fiction that is covering white nationalist terror. Um, so that that's kind of the most exciting part of my new new project. Yeah. Can you give us a name of some of the books that you're working with or TV shows? Yeah, totally. Um, and one of the interesting things about this actually is that some of the fiction that's that's addressing this subject, in fact, most of it that I've found is... Um, crime fiction. So I'm thinking of, there's a great series of detective novels by Asma Zainat Khan um, that feature the same detective duo, um, Rachel Getty and Issa Katak, and they're set in Toronto. And they're part of a special policing unit that deals with hate crimes and race-related crimes. And her background as an author, she's she's got a PhD in international law and specialized in war crimes. So the starting point for their, you know, their broader narrative is, um, you know, based around the genocide in Bosnia in the '90s and the aftermath of that and how and the afterlives of that. But uh, a later book in the series deals directly with uh, a hate crime at a mosque, and it's really powerful really powerful story. And then in addition to that, there's um, Attica Locke's recent um, Darren Matthews mysteries. So one, uh, Bluebird, Bluebird, and then Heaven, My Home. 
and Heaven My Home kind of squarely deals with Trump era, Aryan Brotherhood of Texas, terrorism. And then even more recently, um, I've been looking at um, some of Percival Everett's novels of the 21st century. Um, his most recent novel, The Trees, deals with uh, the legacies of lynching, which of course is, you know, should be understood as a form of terrorism. And I think now more and more is understood as a, a form of terrorism. Um, so those are some, some examples, all texts that I, I have found really kind of rich and exciting to work with. Is it just novels though? Like, sorry, is, is it like, because it, it's because it's such a sort of modern phenomenon, like, do we see this across media too? Or is it just a literary thing? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think actually um, fiction, which I'm working with on my, my current project, because, you know, you have to kind of draw a circle around your project somewhere. Um, fiction has actually been kind of slow to deal with that particular form of terrorism. Yeah. And we've seen a lot of it in TV, like um, in, you know, in prestige TV and things like Sons of Anarchy and even House of Cards and uh, other things. The odd episode that deals with... Um, white nationalist or Christian fundamentalist terrorism. Mm. But now it's becoming more of a thing in fiction, I think. And, um, and certainly it's, it's about time because, you know, all of the social sciences reporting on terrorism, particularly in America, but around the world has shown that white nationalist terrorism is by far uh, the most prevalent form at this, at this point. Yeah, but that just doesn't spin very well in the media, you know. Like. I know, I know, and this this is one of the things. I, I, this is one of my hopes for the, this project is that yeah. it will kind of challenge that and, and resist that. F. Because when you're talking about sort of like so, it's, I, I guess like terror fiction or fi the fiction of terror, like do you encounter any of the like what is what does that mean to like is it the life of a fictional person going around and it's suddenly interrupted by oh my god the the towers. I'm in the middle of everything. Um, or is it more along the lines of sort of like, you know, the other kind of fictions of terror? Like we're thinking here like conspiracy theories, yeah? Like can jets be, so jet fuel, can it melt spilt steel, steel beams? I completely ruined that. Can, can it? Jet can it melt, melt steel, steel beams? beams? Can it though? Like, is no that the true actually. fiction? <laughs> um, I mean, that, that was like, that's the title of my module. And certainly that kind of double <laughs> meaning was in my mind. Um, what can jet fuel melt spilt steel beams why is that so hard to say oh my god um <laughs> it's difficult to say because it's true it's true yeah. <laughs> I've, I've largely avoided uh, kind of conspiracy theory in in my work but certainly like the idea that fiction provides um a counter narrative to fictions that appear in the media if, if you see what i mean or or mistruths and that kind of uh that kind of official narrative. Yeah, just trying to resist the urge to say fake news because I know that's nope. so Hello. much more loaded. <laughs> like, um, I was wondering as well, like, if um, literature's taken a while to catch up, like, with other forms of media, is that because there's kind of, um, I don't know, like a, a hierarchy of media engagement and perhaps mm -hmm. the, sort of, the forms that are seen as more lowbrow have been faster to respond because it's seen as like a sort of classist problem. Yeah, no, I think that that's a smart 
um, suggestion. I mean, I'm always quick to um, try and resist those kind of hierarchies of form, particularly within literature, you know, and um, I think that that's a false hierarchy to kind of set crime fiction or, or fantasy to one side. Um, and, and maybe there's, there's a case to, you know, maybe, maybe there's something to say about how, because terrorism occupies this strange place where it's kind of in some ways uh, seen as a crime, in some ways seen as an act of war, because of that, and because of those blurred boundaries, maybe crime fiction with its, you know, formulas and um, narrative certainties is really effective at kind of dealing with that, um, the vagueness of terrorism, if you see what I mean. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what to say uh, about other other forms like television. I mean, television moves a lot faster than than fiction as well. I'm trying to think. There was like a period of time I feel in, and you know, I'm thinking of like 24. You know, the Jack Bauer genres, where mm. a lot of a lot of terror narrative was based around sort of like, let's punch the people that don't look like us, and then have like a cool like background to it, and let's never go to the bathroom in 24 hour periods. Um, that's all I remember from that TV series. Like, do you think the depiction that's of terror has where the been... commercials are? Because an actual episode <laughs> yeah, of 24 okay, isn't oh, an hour. Yeah, because it isn't yeah. an hour. It's 45 minutes because of commercials. So that's when they go to the toilet. Oh, you're right. That's when they go to the toilet. Okay, fair mm-hmm. enough. Think um, about it. Think about it. Jet fuel. Uh, <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> but yeah, do, do you think there is now sort of like a, is there a shift at all in terms of this idea of it's, it's no longer sort of uh, like heroic protagonist against the kind of infiltrators? I'm, what, what's the other one with um, is it Claire Danes? Um, it's uh, Homeland, you're thinking Homeland, of. yeah, Homeland. And then there's also that terrible one, Designated Survivor. I did try and watch that during lockdown and I just couldn't I couldn't handle it. Yeah, I mean, I, there was definitely a kind of, I guess what we'd call a cycle of counter-terrorism procedural dramas, including um, 24 and Homeland. And, I mean, there, there have been recent iterations of that. I mean, we look at something like the BBC series Bodyguard, which was 2018 or 19 maybe, and, and I, I understand that there's another series of that on the way, which in many ways kind of conformed to the conventions established by 24 and Homeland. And it did push against them in, in, in some ways, but um, it's, it's quite ultimately quite conservative, I think. Um so so yeah there's a weird subgenre of uh, or a full genre really of uh counterterrorism procedural dramas and it's there's many many examples of that is there such a thing of like 911 noir is that a thing <laughs> <laughs> there is i mean there's a uh a, a great novel called the zero which is very much 911 mm. noir it's one of the early 911 novels actually by Jess Walter and even Thomas Pynchon's Bleeding Edge might be said to be a 9-11 noir. Um, but I mean, I think your, your question was, are, are we moving away from that kind of formation? Yeah, um, the kind of like heroic. Of, you know, the Homeland 24 thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, maybe slowly, I think there are more and more uh, examples that are trying to question the way we understand terrorism and certainly like in the latter half i mean i guess in in the last decade there have been some pretty awesome 
examples of novels about terrorism that you know have have done some really interesting things so we might point to um you know anna burns milkman for one thing which looks back um to a kind of previous example uh and same with rachel kushner's the flamethrowers uh both of which kind of look back to um late 20th century uh, iterations of terrorism but more recently like camilla shamsi's home fire is really brilliant and um even more recently mega majumdar's a burning is just an astonishing novel a lot to do with fire i'm enjoying this kind of like semantics of just sort of everything like blowing up and <laughs> falling apart home fire home home flame flamethrowers <laughs> yes Liz Truss be like She's living in a world and it's on fire Filled with catastrophe But she knows she can fly away Oh, she can Hit the ground And she's burning it down oh, I mean, can we agree that the, the best, um, I think, cultural product that has ever dealt with terrorism is um, Four Lions starring Riz Ahmed um, I thought you oh, were going to sure. say Team America, World Police, and I was like, I think I mean, that's inappropriate, but also. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, but can terrorism be funny? Because, I mean, have you seen Four Lions? I have, and actually I, I get lots of essays about that. Um, I think it's one that... <laughs> that really, yeah, students love that. that, And, I mean, it is a great film. But if you've watched, I don't know if either of you've watched uh, Hani Abu Assad's um, 2006 film Paradise Now, which is a kind of quite somber, in some ways quite somber film about two would-be suicide bombers in Palestine. Um, It actually has a couple of of moments of, a couple of explicitly comedic moments that are really subversive and really um, bring the film to life, I think. So I I think terror can be comedic in some ways, um, or it can inhabit those forms to useful effect. Mm-hmm. I'm not so but sure we're... about four lines, though. There's some questionable moves in that film, I think. <laughs> I mean, just a few, but. <laughs> is, is there, are there any examples of sort of 9-11 or terrorist literature not that it's just inappropriate is, is it ever inappropriate for a forum to take on 9-11 gosh that that is a tricky question i family mean i guess guy. definitely family guy <laughs> <laughs> i mean my, my response to that would probably be to say and and maybe in some ways i'm not adequately answering your question but i think a lot of the 9-11 fiction of the first decade particularly is very conservative. And so I would say that's inappropriate in a sense. <laughs> and that's, you know, so many of those novels are very inward looking, um, are very kind of white, heteronormative um, family novels that don't really kind of live up to the geopolitical realities of the time. They don't adequately deal with state violence and terrorism, even though they're published during a very kind of critical and peak period of that. Um, so that, I hope that's, that's an acceptable response. That's but I'm not because sure. we're the good guys, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
yeah, there, it, it's it's surprising now looking back just how conservative some of those novels are, and you know, by by novelists who historically we'd look to for very kind of exacting social and political criticism. So, how is um, nine eleven like a hurricane? Um... <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of your other work on sort of natural disasters like do you do you make any sort of comparisons in terms of this kind of narratives of crisis or i guess like fictions of crisis and because mm. yeah i don't know like is, is there similar stuff particularly when you're thinking about the the state violence as an avenue for thinking through terror like hurricane katrina is, is just like rife with state ineptitude and structural violence is built into it in terms of the scale of that tragedy do you like mm. how do you see these things do they communicate? Is a hurricane the same thing? I mean, it's a really interesting question. It'd probably take me a long time to answer that adequately, I think. <laughs> no, no, do my... it quickly. One sentence. <laughs> uh, yeah, countdown. Come on. Uh, up. My, I think Is my, a hurricane uh, a terrorist, Aaron? <laughs> no, definitely okay. not. There we go. <laughs> but I mean, the question's interesting because, like... You know, in some ways, 9-11 was seen as a kind of, uh, it was depoliticized like a natural disaster, mm -hmm. whereas Hurricane mm -hmm. Katrina was a natural disaster and was, you know, a very kind of political flashpoint. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, the other dimension to that is that it wasn't the hurricane as a natural disaster in and of its own right that caused such devastation. It was longstanding state neglect and mm -hmm. really the the impact of Katrina was to reveal that longstanding neglect and abandonment of so many American citizens by the state. Mm. I mean, um, was it also because, you know, 9-11 affected people in the financial sector and that was the true tragedy versus... Yeah, gosh. I mean, it's, it's a horrible thing. I mean, it is, yeah. And 9-11, yeah, it, it kind of engendered this national unity even though you know there was so much racism attached to 9-11 as well mm -hmm. it did kind of uh, engender this na national unity whereas katrina revealed these deep and long-standing fractures so really like i mean i have my katrina book does kind of use 9-11 as a key context in understanding it um or uh you know the, the aftermath of 9-11 but Actually, uh, what I'm trying to do in that book is to kind of think about the the places where these traumatic moments or events intersect with longer standing um, systemic or, you know, what Rob Nixon has called slow violences. And I think some of the Katrina texts really do do that um, in, in useful and interesting in rich ways, they kind of show what it means to experience a, a trauma in in the context of this ongoing um, slow violence. So yeah, I'm not sure if that, that quite did it, but we don't actually ever want answers on this podcast. That would be that would be excellent. <laughs> <laughs> that would not be conducive to our praxis. Um, but is there something kind of like a bit? I, I don't know. Is there such like, like like terror porn? Like, is there a problem in some ways in terms of 
fictional depictions of crisis and because i think in some ways right literature is a space that we turn to in part for entertainment and for pleasure so is there something mm -hmm. kind of i don't know ethically questionable or something that crops up at all in your work in terms of what are the yeah i don't know when is it okay to read a fiction about terror i don't know that's a very large question so i don't know yeah i mean i think that's one of the things one of the the things going back to 9-11 is that a lot of the novelists felt like, you know, how do we write fiction mm -hmm. about something that kind of is such a somber reality, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But I think an another thing I would say to that question, which I hope is, is useful, is I think you do have to kind of constantly remind yourself that you're not reading these texts to strictly, like, better your understanding of um america and its role in the world or the nature of geopolitical conflict it's it is about you know giving these phenomena a, a human dimension or trying to get insight into the lived reality of these experiences and that's that's what fiction gives us i suppose so it's important to kind of like to hang on to that i think Sort of relatedly then, like, there's all the sort of dark tourism thing when we think about, like, visiting Ground Zero and the way that the memorial's been erected. Is that a good or bad? Like, should we be memorialising Ground Zero? Um, gosh, that's, that's another tricky, tricky question. I mean, I guess... <laughs> The, I, th I think the way I would respond to that is is going back to something I've already said, and that's that's probably or kind of reiterating something I've already said. And I think the thing about nine eleven is that it has the importance that we have ascribed to nine eleven is disproportionate to the amount of lives lost on that day. And of course, it's tragic that these 3000 people died and of course their lives should be remembered and their loved ones should have a chance to, um, an opportunity to, and a place to do that. And, you know, of course there was a wider national cultural significance to that, but, you know, we have to kind of bear in mind that, you know, there have been numerous seismic events around the world that have resulted in far greater losses of life that have not been memorialized in the same way. So whilst I, you know, I understand that that need, I think it's important to kind of contextualize it like that and bear that in mind that you know we have we have really disproportionately um, memorialized nine eleven and inflated its importance um, and and you know. I'm guilty of this as a scholar as well because every time I write about nine eleven, every time I write you know, anything about this subject, I'm contributing to the ongoing, um, you know, exceptionalization of 9-11 as a, as a moment. And I try to be reflexive and to question that as I go, but, you know, it's one of the kind of paradoxes of 9-11 studies as a discipline that you're always going to kind of continue to ascribe this great importance to this moment, even if you're trying to undercut that in some ways. Yeah, no, for sure. Like, I um, initially wrote as a question, why are we so obsessed with 9-11? But then I thought that, oh, is that disrespectful? 
but equally it's true like this um <laughs> as you say there, there there are bigger events and there are events that happened elsewhere it's, it's a huge deal because of the cultural impact but equally yeah yeah i mean i feel like in some ways it comes back to the nature of events right oh no it's, it's just i've got terrible delay on whatever i i was thinking about it in terms of this is completely unfounded but it's almost the extent of like i feel American media, broad brushstrokes, obsessed with 9-11 to the same extent that British media is, is like obsessed with Princess Diana. Like, <laughs> like it seems to be the default thing of like uh, slow news day, quick, just slap up something to do with Diana or 9-11 and that will sell. Or this will be like, a, it's, a, it's a moment of in which the, the, you know, the country pulled together and had a particular idea of itself. Um, it is also weirdly, those two incidents are both ones that I remember being explicitly shown on television at school what like that diana had died um and there was like a news report about that and then also um the towers on tv so that maybe it's just because it's joined in my my memory as a child but yeah i don't know i, don't know what I think you're about. onto something there in terms of how the <laughs> two events relate to national identity certainly mm-hmm. um and you know trump has continually uh in in his presidency he continually evoked the memory of 9-11, often to demonize um, Congresswoman Ilan Omar um, in in the most ridiculous and egregious ways, actually. But he did it because he knew that it was such an emotive subject that he could, you know, garner a lot of support by, you know, harnessing the power of 9-11. I mean, this is now literally, I mean, I I know I um, flippantly talked about um, Family Guy earlier, but there is that scene where I think Lois is trying to, I don't know, vote she's trying to get some people's votes and she goes up to the podium and just says repeatedly 9 11 and the crowd goes fucking wild um so a bit of a tone switch we forgot yeah, I, feel to like argue... I feel like this episode is a funny episode because <laughs> well I've i mean that's your own fault people. aaron this is your choice of what research focus like you could have tried Sorry. harder to mm-hmm. to like you know sway your research towards something for, far more funny for our purposes. <laughs> Tinder bio. <laughs> oh my gosh. You know, this, this, <laughs> this I found mildly terrifying and like I, it made me like realize how earnest I am and not very good at this kind <laughs> of, of humor. So I don't know if I, you know, I, yeah, I actually found myself Googling examples of tinder bios uh just about now <laughs> didn't come up with any good content i'm afraid <laughs> right we've got 10 minutes aaron give us your shit tinder bio um <laughs> it better be good after this yeah it's terrible and <laughs> i did i did look online to see if i could find some you know examples of tinder bios and did you tinder- google 9-11 tinder bio <laughs> um yeah, I was just thinking more generally. Uh, okay. But they came up with lots of kind of like formulaic ones, like, you know, um, you know your, your favorite songs and things like that. Um, I just went for the classic alliteration based on, you know, the topics I'm working on now. So my academic Tinder bio is terrorism, television, and transatlanticism. I mean, alliteration's fine. I think I would judge you for being a bit basic. Um, <laughs> I can but, then would I, but then would I think no he's, he's straight to the point I respect that 
Mm-hmm. I'm also, yeah. I'd be intrigued by the television part just because I also enjoy TV a lot. It was worth it. Was That was worth the 10 minutes of, um, of audio <laughs> <laughs> refreshing. Definitely. Definitely. But I think that just before you go, we should talk to you about television. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Because that's your, your new edited collection coming out soon. Um, so It's out now, actually. It came out, um, oh, yes. it dropped just last week um, as part of the Post 45 Contemporaries Clusters is the, the new word for these things it's a cluster of essays on new literary television and i was um i i put it together with uh, sam thomas your your colleague louise and it, I've, I've actually i don't know about you guys but and obviously you're you're doing this collaboration with this podcast but uh one of the things with the pandemic has really kind of increased my interest in collaborating um mm-hmm. partly because you know partly it's about you know, sharing work and it feels like a way of enacting solidarity as well um, in a small way. Oh, and no, I love it. I've been working the last we, couple of I weeks. think for us it was um, just, well, let's piss about with the equipment we don't understand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't classify this for me as like my academic collaboration, Louise. Um, but like I have, I have actually found really uh, rude. <laughs> rude. Uh, I found it really like really great working um, on collaborative documents like Google Docs, like working on, I don't know, funding bids or essays or whatever with people um, to be really like, mostly because I think everyone's just really tired. So when I have like a half baked thought, like anonymous hamster will pop up and finish the thought for me, which is amazing. And then same like vice versa, like they will have left like a, a half finished fragment of a sentence and I'll go, oh, that's actually a really great beginning of an idea and I'll finish it off. And it's just this nice way of kind of like speeding things along in a, in a quite a lovely yeah. like democratic and i don't know supportive manner not like this podcast which is not democratic or supportive i'm just i'm i'm insulted that i'm obviously more invested in the podcast than you are <laughs> um, maybe i need another collaborator need a, a new co-host a new co-host yeah um yeah. But I, we we have questions about TV, and I, I love that you have um, you focus on the Wire in a little abstract that you sent through to us because I'm actually I am watching the Wire for the first time. This has been the thing that I'm doing uh, for the last few weeks. My partner and I we're now on mm. season two, um, and I was talking to a friend about it who described it as Tolstoy, but for TV. What are your thoughts on this? Well, this this is like this is actually the the cluster that Sam and I have just published is kind of in direct response to that discourse, um, which has identified the wire and things early early iterations of prestige TV as literary in in that sense that they somehow kind of mirror nineteenth century uh, fiction, uh, you know, social realism, um, and you know, there's there's some truth to that. And there's been a kind of, you know, a longstanding argument that television has emphasized this in order to accrue prestige and cultural value. And David Simon pitched The Wire as a novel for television. And, you know, he's he's emphasized that element of it in so many ways. But really, I, I, we kind of wanted to look at some newer examples or more recent programs that are using literary history as a more open archive in kind of idiosyncratic and different ways. And actually kind of examples of TV that are focused on 
acts of reading and writing and publishing and um so there's essays in the in the cluster on I May Destroy You and Younger and Lovecraft Country and Fargo and Lodge 49 um, and Gilmore Girls, um, all kinds of interesting stuff. So, yeah, check it out. Yeah, no, it's, it's really, really cool. I, I mean, I loved quite a lot of things in that because I'm a pretentious TV watcher. Nice. Um, I, 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 <laughs> and a 19th century novel reader. That's just And you. a 19th century novel reader. Yeah, um, yeah I mean... I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know to what extent I agree about the the sort of the TV thing and the nineteenth century thing because I think it's so easy to be like, oh, it's like Dickens but TV. But I don't know that's what you're saying at all. But I think a lot of people will use that when they're quite. It's a it's a lazy Victorianist thing to be like, oh, Dickens is a soap opera. Mm. Like, or oh, what because it's episodic. Or... Yeah, pretty much. Right, okay, that, that, that's the gist of it. Because um, that's what the kids are watching, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, David yeah. Simon was quite reflexive about that with The Wire, and there's actually an episode in the fifth season called The Dickensian Aspect. Um, <laughs> oh, cool. Love it. That, that's, see, I, that sounds more up my street. Um, I haven't watched The Wire either because I am. Oh, it's really good. I, I was told. I was told by so many people like it's really good, and I was like, oh, whatever, fuck off. I can't be bothered. I I hate doing things that people think is great. Um, I'm just too hipster for it. Um, but no, it it really is fucking great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it was really great. Idris Elba, incredible. Um, yeah, Idris Elba's awesome, and and Michael Kenneth Williams uh, sadly mm. recently passed away. The novel. Yeah, Aaron, is there anything that you would like us to know about um, or anything that you would like our guests to know about and we will share far and wide? Uh, no, I mean, just maybe that uh, cluster, um, the new literary television cluster of essays that you can find via uh, Post 45. They're free, open access online. Uh, they're all about 3,000 words, so... Oh, that's nice. I like the format of that as well. Almost episodic in itself. It cool. is. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. Fantastic. Well, I'm just going to take this chance because Louise isn't here to say that um, she's the worst co-host and uh, I, I hate collaborating with her on a, a semi-weekly basis. Um, <laughs> but thanks so much for coming on. It's been great chatting and hopefully we found the lighter side of terrorism. Um, Something no. like that, I think. Yeah. I mean, Something like that. <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure. I could talk to you guys for, for hours. You can follow Aaron on Twitter at Keeble Aaron and check out his work on new literary television on post45.org. Just give it a Google. Shout out to our biggest fan and most consistent listener, my mother, Faye. You can get in touch with us by emailing lawmypraxis at gmail.com or finding us on Twitter at lawmypraxis.